the railway network in the UK is old and vast and home to the first public railway to use steam locomotives in the world. The Stockton and Darlington Railway opened in 1825 and connected coal mines in the northeast of England. Although it was preceded by horse-drawn rail routes along wooden tracks by several hundred years, and by grooves cut in limestone paths by several thousand years, it was the metal track, the coal-fired furnace, and the shrill whistle of the industrial steam engine that truly signalled the birth of the age of rail. The next stop on the route was five years after connecting the collieries of Northumbria. The first intercity railway linked the northwestern industrial hubs of Liverpool and Manchester in 1830. And from that moment, its impact on the densely populated island nation was absolute. Since those early days, the British rail network has grown, contracted and grown again into an unwieldy behemoth. The 1,400-kilometre-long island is served by some 31,000 kilometres of track, according to the Rail Infrastructure and Assets 2018-19 annual statistical release. It's managed by Network Rail for a total route length open to trains of 15,847 kilometres. This is almost as long as the distance between London and Sydney, which is 17,000 kilometres. Yet, because of its age, it is built on foundations of experiment, and so, on mistake, it has to deal with the scars earned while learning all the lessons of the past. Lessons that were then passed on to the rest of the world. But although modern rail engineering is richer for these lessons, the challenges remain to this day, and asset managers have to deal with them. These are routes built by competing railway companies, all with their own ideas, poor standardisation of early assets, windy routes designed for slower and less frequent trains, and genuine engineering marvels built to the very limits of contemporary ability. But all of which contribute to an environment of tight tolerances, hard to access assets, and a network pushed to new limits every year. It is old, it is grand, and it needs constant innovation from dexterous asset managers to keep it running smoothly and safely. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. And in this episode, we partner with Fugro to talk about how new technology is helping asset managers deal with Britain's immense rail network. We will learn how increasing the amount and accuracy of data held and increasing the frequency of its collection allows a totally different approach to maintenance and lets projects go ahead that otherwise would not be possible. To learn about that innovation, we will need to go overseas to the Netherlands, where an engineer developed something that led to a revolution for the British railways. But first, we need to understand more about Network Rail, the public body that looks after Britain's railways, and just how it does its job. So I'm John Edgeley. Uh, I'm currently the Chief Engineer for Network Rail. I've been doing that for the past six months in an interim capacity. 
Uh, my formal job is the chief track engineer for, for Network Rail. So chief engineer looks after the uh, engineering team with, within what's called the technical authority for Network Rail. Uh, we uh, curate the standards that Network Rail works within for, for engineering and also the policy for each of the engineering assets. John and his team also do a slew of engineering assurance work to confirm that the standards are correct and everything is running safely. And my track engineering classic job is exactly that, but for that specific defined asset. So as chief engineer, uh, I have um, the mechanical electrical function, the civils function, and the signalling function, and a few other um, uh, ancillary teams also report into me. In short, he is the man to ask about Network Rail's asset management thinking. So I did. So in terms of the big picture, the way that we operate the policy setting, um, the way I look at it, and this is my personal view, is, is it's, it's a virtuous circle. So we, we look at what we think is uh, the reasonable amount of money that's available for the stewardship of the assets. Which is part of a conversation had every five years with the ORR, the Office of Road and Rail, a government body that is responsible for the economic and safety regulation of the British railways and highways. And we look at what the various scenarios are going to be. So do we think we're going to be cash constrained or do we think we're going to have lots of money available to us? So through that, we, we run a number of, uh, as I say, scenarios, actually through quite a few models, actually, for the track assets and all, all the other assets, and determine uh, how much money we think we need to spend to replace the assets or maintain the assets based on the condition that we, we know we have out there at this moment in time. So we will classically have an asset policy which we will refresh every five years. And what we're increasingly moving towards uh, is rather than waiting five years to update and refresh our asset policies, uh, we'll do that on a much more dynamic basis, perhaps every year, every two years, based on our prevailing understanding of what's going on. With recent events, the prevailing understanding has taken a sudden knock. The world that we've lived through for the past six months for COVID, that was a real game changer, complete paradigm shift. And early conversations have begun as to what the next five-year control period, CP7, will look like, which will begin in 2024. The government quite rightly has been pumping vast amounts of money into uh, the UK economy. Now, we need to be mindful of if the UK government needs to be very careful with its available funding. We have to look at some real cash-constrained models what that means to the assets. That might mean we don't do quite as much renewal as we might perhaps like, or we might focus on uh, one particular asset over another. So for instance, uh, do we spend more money on upgrading and replacing the signaling systems or uh, maintaining our structures and earthworks and recognize perhaps that the track asset will be on a managed level of performance, perhaps a level of degradation over a five-year control period. Or conversely, or conversely, if the government feels it's the right thing to do for the UK economy to inject money into the railways to help kickstart businesses uh, and maintain kind of the construction sector, does it want to pump more money in? Therefore, we will spend more money on um, enhancement schemes, uh, asset renewal schemes, and therefore that money will flow wider into the economy. So effectively, we, are, we have scenarios ready for various different um, options that the government uh, may wish to choose. So. Decision-making is absolutely key. 
and Network Rail needs to be able to pick the model that best fits its money and resources from on high, and the realities of the rail down on the ground. The ability to predict the conditions of the assets must be absolutely paramount. Okay, well, this this segues very beautifully back to um, the point we were talking through about uh, policy, because one of the key things that we've been focusing on, certainly this control period, and I can only see it uh, going uh, to higher levels of importance in the future, is the management of data. I think the analogy or the phrase I tend to like to use is we've got an ocean of data, but what actually what we need to be doing is turning that into um, into information, and then from information we turn it into knowledge, and from knowledge we turn that into wisdom. Why? Because if we understand our assets more, we can intervene before problems occur. We can be more uh, focused in how we spend our money. And actually, there's a whole piece about aligning the data that we have from asset to asset. So the way we actually operate currently in Network Rail, uh, largely we've got uh, silos of data. So we know an awful lot about the track. We know an awful lot about the structures. We know an awful lot about the vegetation uh, and so on. Um, But what we need to do is tie that together into uh, connected models. This is on the way at the moment, and John explains that they are already thinking about changing their standards from absolute limits. To say, you know, we let vegetation encroach to this particular point, and therefore we will then remove it or a uh, the track asset to degrade to a certain point, and then we will uh, intervene in terms of maintenance or, or replace it. Actually, as we get better at this, we will be able to um, identify rates of change. That will enable us to change our standards, and that will uh, enable our frontline frontline maintenance teams to prioritise their workload, not on the severity of a defect, but the severity of growth to intervene before that particular issue becomes a performance or a safety-relating issue. This is to do with what Network Rail calls its transformation programme, for remote condition monitoring of rail infrastructure. Network Rail's got this initiative underway called Intelligent Infrastructure, which which you and uh, many of you will have already heard of. But largely what we think of that as is, uh, forgive me for saying the phrase, of clever widgets on the ground, whatever they measuring, whatever. Uh, and that is absolutely part of it. And as we will discover later, our man in the Netherlands has developed what is possibly the king of these clever widgets, which John described as... An absolutely amazing innovation and crucial uh, to network rail. And it is a critical piece of kit to enable all of these changes. But for people like John, the really exciting bit is what comes next. For me, the trick is, as I say, turning that ocean of data, that richness of information into wisdom so in terms of roadmap yes we're on the way with that over the next five years we will see um, tools emerging which will give us degradation rates for the track asset Um, we have plans in place for all the other assets track is actually slightly more advanced Um, uh, but i'd say five years we can we should start seeing something really really Um, powerful and it's quite exciting I'm quite excited by the direction we're traveling currently and we will get to that too but now as promised 
we need to take that trip to the Netherlands and meet the man who created the system that has Britain on track for a rail revolution. A mouse lived in a windmill in old Amsterdam. A windmill with a mouse in When I first spoke to Jos Berkers in August, he was on his annual leave. And in typical genius inventor style, he was relaxing at his remote cabin, secluded deep in the woods near Utrecht. So apologies for the poor audio quality. Jos works for Fugro as a rail data consultant. I support, I would say, the younger professionals who are, in, who are leading the several teams at the moment. I support them with uh, content, but also with how they should work and how they should operate to keep them on track. That's my job at the moment. But he spent his early career working for a rail contractor in the research and development department. It was a job that forced him to think flexibly and adapt to a range of problems, from modifying excavators so that they can grip and lift fallen poles, to understanding survey techniques and some of the limitations that have been faced historically. Slow progress and the need to have workers in a risky environment. Uh, in those six years I worked for the contractor, I think 50% of my project I did do was about measuring. He sometimes worked on specialised track surveying trains, which cost tens of millions of euros and disrupt the regular passenger train schedule. In response to this, for inspections on short lengths of tracks... We developed our own measurement trolley, yeah, so it are also trolleys you can push by hand over the rail, especially also for renewals and, and uh, easily access uh, for short pieces, they are handy. But there was still a problem besides the enormous cost and disruption of measuring long stretches of rail and the manual working required for smaller sections. The measurement for precise track location and the measurement for its condition were two completely separate processes. I also already uh, noted that when you're measuring the rail itself, that there's a difference between measuring geodetically, and geodetically means uh, by uh, GPS or coordinates, that kind of stuff. And uh, it's more about where exactly in the world is the, is the rails, the rail and the track uh, situated. Uh, that, that kind of technology, and you have uh, measurement equipment, which is, which is measuring, you could more say, the roughness of the rail, how it is, uh, the slew and the lifts. It's a little bit less about where exactly it is in the world, but more how straight is the track. And what was already very surprising for me in the beginning, that are two separate worlds. But, Jos says, there was a good reason for this. Location measuring could be done at five kilometers per hour with the technology of the time, which made trolleys appropriate. Whereas condition monitoring could be done at the full speed of a train, making the special measuring train appropriate. But we are still left with all these problems, workers exposed on site in a world increasingly concerned about safety, separate measuring passes for different types of data, slow working, expensive equipment, timetable disruption. Technology moved on. The speed of location monitoring increased, and Jos had an idea. What came into my mind is, well, I've, uh, I got the idea it, will be, it is possible to have those highly technology equipment to put it in one box, I call it a box in the first place, 
Uh, so not having a whole frame, not having a trolley, but having a box where you put in all the equipment and not only for measuring the straightness of the rail, but also the geodetic part. And to make it that compact that, uh, that you can measure, measure everything, but... And here is the most crucial innovation. Make it possible to mount it to a train which you choose by day. So you say, well, today I want to measure, well, in the UK, I could say, uh, I don't know, uh, London to Birmingham or something. Uh, well, you choose the train and you mount the equipment to that train and uh, then you measure it. As simple as that. Yossa's system is called RILA, which stands for Rail Infrastructure Alignment Acquisition. The device itself is a pyramid-shaped black box that can be attached or detached from the normal passenger train in a matter of minutes. No disruption to the service, the entire route is accessible, and it moves at the speed of a train, or several trains. So I went uh, to my director with this idea and explained what I wanted to do, and not with a very detailed uh, plan. I had only one sheet of paper. As you might expect, Yossa's director was unconvinced. Although now a friend and a colleague working on Ryla, this was quite the proposal. Because there are great companies around the world who make great technology, and that uh, guy uh, standing in front of him had, uh, uh, had the idea that it would be possible to combine all those technologies in a little box and with everything I mentioned. So there is only one thing a good inventor could do in this situation. Jos quit his job, took a second mortgage on his house, and began working on his system in the evenings, converting his living room into a workshop after his children had gone to bed and back into a family room before they woke up. I got the attention of the Dutch Railways. I got in contact with the person responsible for uh, uh, all the rolling stock of the Dutch Railways. He liked my idea, he wanted to support me, and, uh, and he asked me, what is it that you want? I, I want to make a prototype, and to test the prototype, I need a train, I need a passenger train. He said, that's okay, so uh, we can help you with that, and uh, what kind of train do you want? So I could choose, we have six, seven types of trains at the Dutch Railways, so I said, well, that's a nice question. Let's have the biggest one. It turns out that asking a railway company for a train is easy. But Jos thinks that if he had needed money, it would have been met with rejection. Everything was set, and Jos got his chance on the 17th of November, 2007. Well, of course, that's great. Uh, one of the biggest moments in my life. I got a train from the railways. And the rest is history. Back in the days, like 10 years ago and, 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 and beyond that, a normal survey team took us about, let's say, two, two days to do a, a mile of a survey. This is Jasper Hellemons, Fugro Business Development Manager and a fellow countryman to Jos Berkers. Uh, and nowadays with the system you can do uh, 200 miles, uh, up to 400 miles a day. So you're, you're speeding up the whole concept and in the, in, the, in, the, in the same time, you're saving a lot of money uh, because surveyors are expensive. Uh, having three to five people beside the track for a day, you can imagine doing that for months in, months out. Uh, it's, a, it's a very cost inefficient way. 
because it's also safer. Yeah, there are no boots in the ballast anymore, no people in the track. Uh, you can run it on a passionate train, mount it easily, and then uh, it saves you a lot of money in that case as well. So uh, no incidents and uh, therefore safer and uh, also saving money. But it is not just about safety or cost. This method obviously renders a vast amount of data unto the rail operators. Many orders of magnitude more data. Normally you have traditional surveys about coordinates. Uh, in, in basics we still deliver coordinates, uh, but we have more uh, data and in a bigger amount of data. So with the point cloud data and the video data and all the track geometry data, the, um, you're, you're, you're discussing about uh, gigabytes instead of uh, several uh, megabytes. And that's the big difference. But on the other hand, the big advantage is when you have those big kind of data sets, you can do a lot more with it. This allows you to understand the condition and the positioning of a lot more of your assets in a quicker time which allows you to build a baseline from which to make future comparisons to measure degradation against. The basic principle we um, worked out the last, let's say, last one and a half year is when you do a, a periodical survey, you have your baseline, uh, which you have your, uh, let's say, your, your, well, your baseline itself. So you have your uh, situation as, uh, from that moment as it is. But data is out of date the very second after it is measured. You can probably imagine how laborious it is to re-baseline an entire rail network like Britain's at the rate of 5 kilometers per hour. In truth, it could not be done effectively. With Ryla, this can be done. Much more frequently and much faster. And you only need to update data that changes. Moving to the UK, its first use was on the Network Rail's High Output Project. This is the team that basically keeps everything going. They carry out 70% of Britain's track renewal work, and they do it quickly. The aim is to carry out track repairs overnight that would have previously needed weekend rail closures. Every night they carry out about 1.5 kilometres of ballast replacement and renew about 1.2 kilometres of rails and sleepers. But to do this they need to know where to go and execute the job swiftly and with surgical precision. The first high-output surveys were undertaken using Ryla five years ago in Scotland. In just two weeks, survey measurement runs of all 64 work sites in Scotland were undertaken, demonstrating how quickly data could be collected. Moving forward to today, Ryla is now being used to survey high-output sites across Great Britain, allowing engineers to plan the work more effectively and design the track alignment. The use of Ryla on the High Output project has saved thousands of surveying man-hours and contributed to a 95% reduction of boots on the ballast on the programme, or people working trackside. The system requires a bit of a cultural change to come to terms with what it can do. But uses like this are easy to explain. You have better knowledge of more of your track and can plan better. Perfectly simple. No one likes being a firefighter, dashing from one instant to the next better to plan. But some of the newer ideas require more explanation before asset owners will take them on. Jasper says there is a Dutch phrase, don't feed them the whole elephant, which he feels explains the approach to bringing new technology and ideas to risk-averse operators with lots of assets. When you look at the, that's not only for real, but the whole, let's say, infrastructure market with all the digitalization possibilities like the building information model, digital twins, 
Yeah, we, we now are able to collect much more data, um, but you need to get the right information out of it. And so you have your, let's say your digital twin available. And when you do a periodical update of that, uh, of that corridor, you can only look at the changes. You could say, for example, okay, this is a signaling post. Oh, it's a bit tilted. So we need to adjust that information, which is linked to the object. Um, but also the, the nice thing is, and because it's also location-based information, you can look at um, all the linear asset systems and relate to different data sets. And I think there becomes the value, your way of um, not looking at one data set, but linking it to different data sets. Uh, the added value gets gets higher and, and the, the reliability of your outcome, of your risk analysis, that's what the asset owner is, is looking for. Where are my biggest risks and where I, do I need to put my money to? Uh, when you can do that more reliable, um, uh, it's easier for the higher management to say, okay, this is the amount of money we need for the next few years. Uh, and the, the, the upcoming fires we were just discussing, when they when they can be can be uh, decreased, uh, I think that's that is where the, uh, the the asset owner will be happy. Andrew Bartlett is the root asset manager for Track on the Wales route, basically the custodian of all rail track in Wales, and he polices anyone who undertakes a track intervention within his territory. In Wales route, we chose to to use Reela back in two thousand. And 18, I think it was, to record the whole of the, the, the track asset uh, using the, the capability of RELA so we could understand our, our gauge clear, our, our, our gauge profiles for all our structures and, uh, and platforms. Structure gauging is analysis done to look at how far various structures are from the track. These could be signals, bridges, other bits of track, even tunnels. And more on those later. It is vitally important to understand how far things are from your trains to avoid collisions. We knew we had a really aggressive uh, kind of like introduction of, of new trains within the Wales route as part of TFW's transformation plans. Transport for Wales. The reason we chose Reela for it was, in essence, speed. We knew that we could get everything recorded within an eight to ten week window, um, whereas if we had relied upon traditional surveying methods, um, it would have taken 12, 18, 24 months potentially to do it. Now that Network Rail has access to this ability to survey its routes quickly, it has to think about how best to implement this, how frequently to rebaseline. For example, on, our, on some of our high-speed routes, we may choose to run it every six months, for example, because then you can actually see the degradation of the track asset and, and, and the actual position of where the track is but also that you could tell whereabouts um, uh, vegetation is growing uh, and where vegetation is starting to encroach onto the, the railway infrastructure and you can actually monitor it and then you can actually um, determine the risk profile and, and predict when you need to intervene rather than react. Here's John Edgeley again. Vegetation management has always been a concern to network rail, but due to some recent accidents, the organisation is much more concerned with keeping an eye on plant life, even if it lies outside the actual railway area. And they have had another realisation really recently. Greenery can be a good thing and should be managed rather than destroyed. I believe our, our vegetation or forest management, somebody said to me, was of the size of the Isle of Wight. 
um, when you consider it across the, the United Kingdom. So that's a huge amount of land that we have. Um, what's been realised over the last few years is actually we needed to reconsider how we viewed our vegetation assets to be precisely that, assets, because we're not just curating um, uh, or curating them on behalf of the uh, for UK PLC uh, and for the general public, because actually when you're sitting on a train, you're looking out, you actually see a bit of um, a bit of greenery. So if you're in the suburbs, that might be the only bit of greenery that you might see uh, in your working days. So we need to be careful about um, how we look after that, considering it, as I say, as a positive asset rather than a liability, which uh, I confess we probably largely did in the past. A recent review of Network Rail's stewardship of trees has been undertaken and Network Rail is currently mulling over the recommendations. So increasingly there's a need for, for Network Rail to understand where, where the vegetation asset is uh, and how that asset is essentially performing uh, and the impact that that can have on, on the operational railway. Uh, obviously it's very dangerous to have uh, vegetation that's too close to the track um, because it can either it can either strike the rolling stock or, or potentially a tree can fall on the line or, or even uh, the, the old leaves on the line situation. This is Mark Thomas, Rail Business Manager for Fugro's Asset Integrity Business in the UK. So the traditional method to, to undertake uh, an assessment of vegetation, uh, like, like many other uh, forms of assessment, is, is a visual assessment. Uh, and that's often carried out by uh, people entering the track, doing a track walk, um, and recording um, recording what vegetation is close to the track and, and what what vegetation has the potential to, to grow into the into the envelope where where the rolling stock uh, runs through um, obviously this uh, has the inherent disadvantage of actually needing to get onto the track um, and having to have uh, uh, people walking uh, in the track space which potentially puts them puts them in a position of danger um, it can also have various other downsides around, you know, uh, repeatability of survey. Um, there's no real record um, of, of what those people have seen. Obviously, they, they walk down the track and they, they record um, various features that they see along the way, but there's no, no real option then to, to replay the video, as it were, uh, and for someone else to take a, take a second look at it. So increasingly, Network Rail is employing in-cab video to record the growth of the vegetation. But this has limitations, as you can only see the surface layer. It's very difficult to see further back within the vegetation and, and maybe even outside of, outside of the railway boundary. Um, it's important to recognise that um, you know, tall trees outside the railway boundary can, can pose a danger to the operational railway. Um, so it's important that, uh, that we can get a view of, of, of that potential risk as well. Fugro has been looking at incorporating LiDAR to get around this. LiDAR stands for Light Detection and Ranging. It's a system that uses pulses of light to detect the distance of objects and surfaces, which can then create a 3D representation of the target. So we have uh, two main systems that we deploy on, on the railway in the UK. We have what we call FlyMap which is a helicopter-borne aerial LiDAR, um, a downward-facing LiDAR, essentially. Um, and, we have, and we have the LiDAR that we have on Ryla, uh, which gives the, the, the track view, um, as it were. 
Now, by combining these two data sources, we have we have the the data from above, which is which is very important in understanding uh, how vegetation relates to the railway, where it sits inside the railway boundary and outside the railway boundary. Um, and we see things from, I guess, from underneath, as it were, with the uh, with the Ryla lidar. Uh, so we're able to look at uh, things like the tree bowl and and the underside of the canopy. Now, by integrating these two data sets, we can get a very good idea of, of what the vegetation actually is. So the actual species of trees, for example, and... We can look at the, the height of the trees. Um, so that gives us the ability to understand which trees have the potential to fall onto the railway. Um, and we can also look at the inclination of, of the trees as well. So are they leaning towards the railway? Are they le leaning away from the railway? Now, interestingly, as, as I said there, we we have the ability to, to map out the species of, of various different trees and vegetation that we see within uh, within the LiDAR data. Um, and this gives us the ability to then predictively look at how the vegetation will grow over time. This sort of technology also has benefits below ground. I think tunnels really falls into this category. So we, we go out and, and we collect data for, let's say, for gauging, and we, we will do gauge clearance on a tunnel. Um, but there's other attributes in within that tunnel data set that, that could be used for, for tunnel management purposes. So going alongside uh, existing methodologies for, for, for investigating tunnels and, uh, and doing tunnel assessments, um, it seems to me that there's opportunity to look at existing RILA data um, to, to understand how the shape uh, of tunnels varies over time. Now, as, a, as, as someone who's been in, in many tunnels over, over many years, it, I know it's very difficult to to really understand how a tunnel shape is is changing over time um, just by looking at it. Um, and with with current assessment uh, methodologies, that is pretty much what we're doing on the majority of tunnels. We, we are just visually inspecting them. Technology has been and is still being developed that allows rail operators to understand and manage their assets more effectively. New technology, extending the usability of old assets that are facing ever-increasing passenger demands. In 20 years, rail journeys increased by 97% to reach a record 1.8 billion journeys in 2018-2019. This is increasing faster than any other mode of transport. Constant innovation will be needed into the future, not just in ways to gather data and work on our assets, but also in new ways to think about how we use data, our strategies and the way we operate. Here's John Edgley again. It would be absolutely wrong of me to say the uh, assets in the UK are unique. Um, we, we work within our own uh, paradigm. So we have um, railways which have been built uh, in terms of track formation structures and so on, uh, and they they were built decades, hundreds of years ago, uh, in 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 a, in a circumstance here and there. Um, in the olden days, when we had steam railways, um, we didn't get the same speeds as we do now. So um, we would have built those in a much more twisty, curvy, turny kind of fashion. Structures would have been. Um, uh, a lot smaller than we might 
for a new build and particularly high-speed railways. Andrew Bartlett points to new surveying technology as well as artificial intelligence as another way to understand and manage our Victorian assets. It is very tight. So from a, from a track perspective, managing our track movement in relation to those fixed structures such as tunnels, platforms, um, over bridges, under bridges, that's kind of like the first devolution with regards to it. We're also using some of this data now to plug into some artificial intelligence software which recognises particular asset types so that we can reposition exactly whereabouts those assets are because at the moment it's gone from a, a reference milepost which we don't know whether that's in the right place and people are guessing how far away they are from it or, or wheeling it with a, a, a wheel. we could be on the verge of in, in the next five to ten years of, of fundamentally changing how we do manage the rail network I mean we still need to run trains on so steel wheels will still uh, run on steel rails however we need to become more proactive and intervene when forecasts rather than intervene when something's failed and it's a whole kind of like mind shift and, and that, that's required through that period and it will require people to adapt as well. Um, and the use of technology uh, and uh, dovetailing this into our intelligent infrastructure program, which is providing those necessary tools and, uh, and, and technology to help us predict when something's going to fail is, is, is key. So I think we're on the, the verge, well, we are on the cusp of, of us changing fundamentally the way that we maintain in, in the 21st century. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Script editing was by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own clever widget is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Fugro, Network Rail and the Permanent Way Institution.